Now let's turn to the passage we've read in the Gospel according to St. Luke and at chapter 22. And we'll read again at verse 44. Being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And let's by God's enabling seek to explore something of this area of scripture today. We want uh, to look at something of the agony that Jesus uh, is encountering in the Garden of Gethsemane. You will remember that the very outset of his public ministry Jesus begins to perform miracle and he begins to teach mighty in word and in deed. And ultimately he falls foul of the religious authorities of the day for two major reasons in particular. One was this, jealousy. The religious authorities were turning up at their temple in Jerusalem and they were looking around and they were saying, where are all the people? Where have they gone? And the answer was they had gone with this man, Jesus. And the question is this, why had they gone with this man, Jesus? Well, no doubt some were really interested in the miracles that Jesus was performing. But that's only part of it. Jesus had something to say that was hugely attractive to a lot of the rank and file of the day. And what he had to say was this, against a backdrop of a religious authority that had taken the Ten Commandments and had said, right, if we obey them, we'll earn our way into heaven. But just to make absolutely sure that we're obeying them, they built up over 600 different laws. And they basically said, you earn your way into heaven by keeping these laws. The average person was in bondage. The average person couldn't keep these laws. The average person was flawed at the very core of his or her being. And they wrestled and they struggled. And they were in great bondage. And by and by this nobody from the back streets of Nazareth bursts onto the scene. And yes, his miracle, you can't get away from it. His miracle-making powers were attracting attention. But that wasn't at all. He was there with a message that basically said, you cannot keep all these laws. In fact, you cannot keep any of them. But I know another way for sinners to enter into heaven. And I am the way. And I am the truth. And I am the life. I am a divine being. I'm human as well. But I can forgive you your sins. And that was like a breath of fresh air to so many of the people. It was just a balm to their souls. People who were in hopelessness, listening to this message, realized, I can enter into heaven after all on the basis of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. So no wonder he was attracting other people. So one of the major reasons was they were jealous, the church authorities of the day. 
But the other major reason was this. These miracles, they stimulated so many questions in the minds of the people. They were meant to do that. And in the 21st century, they are still meant to do that. When we come to the pages of Holy Writ, and we read of a man walking on water, and we read of a man multiplying five loaves and uh, uh, two fish to feed thousands of people, when we read of a man who can resurrect the dead, when we read of a man who can change water into wine, we are meant to say, now how can you, how, who are you? How do you do these things? Where do you get your powers from? And the answer from Jesus always was, I am the Son of God. And the religious authorities picked up on that. They knew exactly what he was saying. He was claiming divinity. Here was someone who was a human being, but he was also claiming to be divine. Divine and human. The two natures in the one person. They knew exactly what he was saying, and they were absolutely outraged. And they put up with it for three years, maybe a little bit over three years and then they said no we're not waiting any longer he's got to go and Caiaphas the leader is saying one man must go to save the nation I don't think Caiaphas ever realised that this one man would save a nation part of which is sitting in the pew here today and hopefully standing in the pulpit as well I don't think he ever realised That's what Jesus was about. He was only interested in politics. He was only interested in the here and in the now. But we're not to be interested only in the here and in the now. We must take in the broad sweep of eternity. It is appointed unto man once to die. And after death the judgment. It is fatal not to take in that broad sweep. But so many people neglect it. And duck and dive. And try uh, to get uh, away uh, from it. And if you remember, plan A of the um, religious authorities of the day was we are not going to do anything to Jesus at Passover time. And you can well imagine why that was. Because at Passover time, people came flooding into the city from all over Israel and far beyond. The, the, the city was jam-packed with people. And when you've got many, many people in the confines of a city, the person in charge will be on edge. You know, when I lived in Glasgow, I lived beside Hamden Stadium. And I used to go down to Hamden just sometimes to watch how the police would operate their crowd control and how they would use their horses in particular. I remember as a boy in school and uh, going down to uh, Hamden Park and in those days uh, West Germany had just won the World Cup and Scotland was the first team they they played after uh, that. If my memory serves me correctly, there were 102,000 on the terracings of uh, Hamden Park. Today, I think you only get about 50,000 in because, because of the seating. But my point is this. When you get vast numbers like that in one confined space, the authorities of the day are on edge. They don't want anything to go wrong. 
because it's okay if you have maybe 10 or 20 people fighting, but if you've got 20,000 people fighting, how do you control that? It was exactly the same at Passover time. And the Roman authorities had Pontius Pilate overseeing Jerusalem, and the one thing he didn't want was any kind of trouble. Because he in turn would be in trouble with the emperor. And he couldn't afford that eh, to happen. And the religious authorities were switched on to that as well. And they knew that if they were ever going to get rid of Jesus of Nazareth, they needed the permission of Pontius Pilate. It basically means this. They cannot afford to fall out with him in any way whatsoever. So plan A was... We are not going to do anything to him at Passover time. Why? Well, you can well imagine. If they arrest Jesus on the open streets of Jerusalem, his friends are there, they are not going to stand back. They are going to intervene. And before you know where you are, you might have a riot in the heart of Jerusalem. And so they said, no, we're not. But you know, they changed their minds. They changed their minds. And the question is this, why did they change their minds? And the answer is because they were so livid with them. They were so angry with them. They decided, no, we are. And of course the solution came to them in terms of Judas Iscariot, who went to them and said, look, I know what you're up to. And I know what you want. And I can give it to you. But you're going to have to pay me for it. And ultimately, 30 silver coins exchanged hands. And I dare say for the first while, Judas was contented with it. But his contentment didn't last. Because soon these coins would be rolling along the floor of the temple. But they effected their arrest. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the very place where Jesus would go to pray. Do you know if we ask the question, why did he go there to pray? It's a reminder to us of the humanity of Jesus. Because Jerusalem was a bustling city. And you know what it's like in the midst of the hustle and bustle of life. Sometimes you just want to withdraw. To a place of solitude, just to meditate and just to engage in prayer. And Jesus was no different. He wanted away from the hustle and the bustle. And he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. So the very place of prayer is the place where the arrest of Jesus it takes place. But we're not quite at the arrest yet. We're just before uh, the arrest. And we're reading there that he was in an agony. Being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And the first thing I want to say about this agony is this. Whatever was causing it, it was not physical. There is nobody assaulting Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. There is nobody assailing him. There is nobody attacking him. Now, it's not that Jesus was never assaulted or assailed or attacked. He was. 
some made a fool of him. And they were beating him and saying, come on, tell us, who is it that's beating you? Pontius Pilate. I think we mentioned that yesterday. Pontius Pilate, the man who ultimately will sit in judgment of Jesus, was a man wrestling in his innermost thinking and was a man who was disturbed in his conscience and he does many, many things in an attempt to get Jesus off his hands. You know, when I lived in Glasgow, I, when I was a student, I got lodgings with them, a Jewess. She and her husband had fled Austria to get away from Hitler. And uh, they had set up a wee business uh, in Glasgow. Uh, and her husband had died, and uh, to make ends meet, she was taking in students. And sometimes we would talk about these things, and this is what she would say to me. Ah, but the Jews didn't kill Jesus. It was the Romans. But that's not true. That's not true. There may be an element of truth in it. The Roman who gave permission for Jesus to be crucified was Pontius Pilate. But if Pontius Pilate could have had his own way he would have had nothing at all to do with Jesus. And as he tried to wriggle his way out of his responsibilities, on one occasion he sent Jesus to Herod, who happened to be in Jerusalem at that particular time. They were bitter enemies. But it's amazing how bitter enemies can become bedfellows when they have one common foe in view. And that's what happened. Pilate hoped when he sent Jesus to, to Herod that Herod would pin something on him because you'll remember what Pilate's verdict was. I find no fault in this man. He says it again and again. So why isn't he letting him go free? The answer simply is he is afraid of these Jewish church authorities. That's why. And so Jesus goes to Herod. And Herod makes a fool of Jesus. And he's arrayed in all these colors of a king. You think you're a king. You're not a king. I'm the king. You're not a king. But we'll play you at your game. And we'll dress you in royal colors. And we'll make a crown for your head out of thorns. And a bleeding Jesus comes back to Pontius Pilate. They physically assaulted him. They physically assailed him. But crucially, no condemnation from Herod. The very thing Pilate was looking for, he's not getting. And Pilate himself, in one of his attempts to wriggle himself out of the difficulty he was in, had Jesus skirt a brutal Roman form of punishment. And he stripped and he is lashed with a scourge. And the scourge was designed to tear and to lacerate. And he is physically assaulted. And he is physically assailed. He is bloodied and he is bruised by the physical assaults that are coming at him from all angles. But it's crucial for us to remember there's nothing of this 
in the garden of Gethsemane. Nobody's assaulting him. Nobody's assailing him. Nobody's attacking him. So there's nothing physical about it. Although we would have to qualify it in this sense. There is something going on in the garden of Gethsemane that manifests itself in a physical way because the sweat was as it were great drops of blood dropping down to the ground. Now I know there are different views on this. Some think it was literally um, blood that was coming from Jesus. Some think it was sweat uh, mingled with, uh, with blood. But let's not get caught up in that detail. What we want to note is this. There is something happening that causes this a manifestation of something physical so that his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood uh, falling down uh, to the ground. So if it is not physical, what then is it? And I think the answer is this. It is spiritual. And that's why we've read in the uh, Gospel according to St. Matthew and at uh, chapter 4 where we read there uh, what happens to Jesus at the time of uh, his baptism. At the time of the baptism of Jesus, he hears a voice from heaven. And the voice is this. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And the question is this. Why on earth is God saying that to Jesus right now? You see that sometimes we make this fatal error with Jesus. We think he was the God-man. And he never had any problems in life's journey. He just took everything in his stride. Well, isn't that what you would expect of a God-man? Except he's very God of very God. And I know there's profound mystery in this. But the truth that is revealed to us is this. He's very God of very God. But he's very man of very man. And the two are not mixed. What does it mean then? Well, it means this. That this is the Jesus who is assaulted and who is assailed and who is tempted enormously by the enemy of his soul. But his eternal father is one step ahead of what's happening. And his eternal father tells him, you're my son. Because hard on the heels of his baptism, he goes out into the wilderness and the very thrust of the enemy's attack is this. If you are the son of God, change these stones into bread. And maybe you're here today. And that is the very strategy that he's using on you. I mean, how many of you are here today? And I include myself, who have this thought coming into their minds often, and particularly at a time of communion. You're not the real thing. You're not the genuine article. And then he takes us through many of the things we've done in life's journey whether it was yesterday or 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 50 years ago. And he's saying, if you were the real thing, that would never happen. And his strategy is basically this. If you're a child of God, but you're not really. You're not really. It's exactly what happens to Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus defends himself by quoting scripture to the enemy of his soul. Not only when he says man shall not live by bread alone, but when Jesus uh, is taken uh, to the temple, and again the devil is uh, saying to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written he will command his angels concerning you. The devil has a very good knowledge of scripture, doesn't he? And he uses it very subtly at times. Here is the enemy of our souls. 
He knows what the Bible says. And he throws it at us at times. The same way as he did to Jesus. And Jesus' answer is that uh, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Here's the third one. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, now listen to this. All these I will uh, give you if you will fall down and worship me. And you begin to think, what on earth is this devil playing at? Don't they belong to Jesus? Isn't he the creator of the universe? And isn't he today as a human being sitting on the throne of the universe ruling all these kingdoms? So why is the devil saying, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me? It's so subtle, isn't it? What the devil is saying is this. You can get these things and reign over them as the God-man without going through all the agonies of your 33 years in this world. The Golgothas and the Calvaries, you don't need to go there. I'll give it to you all if you fall down and worship me. It is so subtle. It is so fly. And this is what Jesus says. Be gone, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Yesterday we were speaking about one of the names of Jesus. He is the servant. And he came into this world to fulfill a remit. He came into this world to fulfill the role of servant. And the devil wants him to short circuit it all. And if he achieved that, the devil, you and I would be in hopelessness and in despair today. But we're not in hopelessness and we're not in despair. Why? Because he resisted the devil and he did everything that God required of him absolutely everything now if the devil put in so much effort and so much energy at the outset of Jesus' ministry can we think for a solitary moment as Jesus comes near to the place called Golgotha that he is not there as well of course he's there now what was Gethsemane well you know Hugh Martin wrote a book on Gethsemane and he called it the shadow of Calvary And that is what Gethsemane was. Because someone's shadow is not that person. The shadow and the person are different. Gethsemane was not Golgotha or Calvary. It was just the shadow of it. It is a man looking round the corner of his life. And as he looks round to see what he's seeing round that corner, he recoils in abject horror. But it is very important for us to remember this. He says to his father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And you know, the psalmist could say, unite my heart, Lord, that I thy name may glorify. And that's the way it was in the life of Jesus of Nazareth as well. His heart was united so that he glorified the name of the father, but not without terrible, terrible temptation from the enemy of the soul to throw the towel in and to walk away or to take an easy route. How often has the devil tempted you in that way? Take the easy route. Throw the towel in. Just the same way as Christ was, or at least the same strategy, I should say, with which he assaulted and assailed Jesus of Nazareth.
And in the agony of Gethsemane, this man says, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful. You see, it is a soul pain. No physical attack, but spiritual assault of a great magnitude. Do you remember what the Passover was? In 1446 BC, the children of Israel left the land of Egypt. And on the night they left, they had to sacrifice the Passover lamb. And they had to take some of that blood and put it on the doorposts and on the door lintel. And when that angel came, the angel of death, and saw that there had been obedience to God in that home, the angel literally flew over. It passed over the home. But only because the life of the blood, uh, the life of the lamb had been shed. The life was in the blood. In Corinthians we read this, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. He is the ultimate Passover. Because of his blood being shed, if it covers the door lintels and the doorposts of our hearts, we are not going to die eternally. He'll pass over us. It's like music to the ears, is it not? Of poor, wretched, bedraggled sinners who come into the presence of God sometimes feeling that they could run a million miles away. But where are you going to run to? And to whom are you going to run? There's nowhere to go to. And there's no one to go to. But we don't need anywhere to go to. And we don't need anyone to go to. Because our sacrifice, our Passover, has been uh, slaughtered. But he's not yet slaughtered. He's still in Gethsemane. And the powers of hell are determined to put a spanner in the works. So that none of his children will be uh, saved. And so... This agony is not physical. This agony is a spiritual. But if we ask this question, what is this agony all about? I suppose we could approach it from many angles, but we dare not forget this one. This agony is about you, and this agony is about me, if we are believers today. Because here is someone who wrestles, as he just about steps out to go round the corner of his Next phase in life's journey. So that ultimately his blood will shed, be shed at that place called Golgotha. Do you see why I say this agony is about you and this agony is about uh, me. If we are believers in him uh, today. Do you feel bad about it? Do I? Well at one level yes I hope so. Because it's your sin that caused it. And it's my sin that caused it. But let me ask you another question. Do you feel good about it? I hope so. I hope so. The very reason he was in this world was because way back in the midst of eternity before there was ever a universe created in the interaction with an Trinitarian Godhead the Father is saying these fallen sinners that I want to gather to myself to be with me eternally, to be my church so that I can commune with them and have communion with them. These fallen sinners I'm giving to you, you've got to be my servant. And you've got to do something for them. And Jesus is saying, yes, I will. Yes, I will. Yes, I will. That's why there's a birth in the stable in Bethlehem. And that's why just over three years later, there is agony in the garden of Gethsemane. And that's why ultimately Gethsemane will be left behind and Golgotha will be faced. Why? 
What is it all about? And here is one of the most astonishing things we will ever come across in the whole of God's universe. It's all about love. The love of sinners. But you think, why? Why on earth? You know, sometimes I have to say to my people, it, it sometimes almost seems too good to be true. It just seems, you, you couldn't make this stuff up. You couldn't. But you've got to pinch yourself at moments like that. When you're thinking, no, this is just too good to be true. You've got to pinch yourself. And remember, it's God that's saying it. It's not a human being. This is the truth of the God who was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. I want you who have come here today with your heart as low as it can possibly get because you are in your own mind the greatest sinner in the world. I want you to remember that this agony is about dealing with your sin. That the whole of his 33 years that Gethsemane and Golgotha and everything else in between is about him dealing with what it takes to make us one with God. And when the enemy of your soul comes in like a flood and tries to utterly destroy your communion table experience, just tell him this. This blood was shed. This body was broken. He's got no answer to it. He has got no answer to it. And you should bask in the glory of it afresh in this day. Now we come to the part of the service that is known as the, the fencing of the uh, Lord's table. And um, someone said in the Mass yesterday that the preaching of God's Word from Sabbath to Sabbath is effectually uh, the uh, fencing of the Lord's table. And that is true. That is true. But please let's remember this. That if you're here today and you're thinking in terms of, well, you know what? I am a sinner. But I know other sinners who have done this and that and the next thing. And I know my neighbours done this. I haven't done that. I haven't gone there. I haven't done these things. So, yeah, I am a sinner. But I'm not the biggest sinner in the world. And therefore, I can go to the Lord's table. If that's what you're thinking, stay away. Stay away. It's not the place for you. Who's meant to be at the Lord's table? Well, you know, the Pharisee went into the temple to pray one day. And he looked around himself as he uttered his long pious prayers to God and he said to God I thank you that I'm not like this person that person and the next person God wasn't interested not remotely in fact it was an abomination to God but the sinner went in on the same occasion and stood afar off and would not lift up as much as his eyes unto heaven but smote upon his breast and said God be merciful to me the sinner now some people take great comfort in this I'm a sinner, but we're all sinners, so it's not too bad. I'm one of a great bunch of sinners. That's not what that sinner said, though. He said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. What's he saying? He's saying to God, there isn't a sinner in all of your creation like me. This is the definite article sinner. This is the sinner par excellence crying out to you for mercy. And we read of that man that he went down to his house justified. What does that mean? It means to be justified. It means to have a declaration by God that in his law courts he's got nothing against you. Nothing whatsoever. And it's just so crucial 
in the fight against our enemy of souls to make that distinction between justification and sanctification. If people are being sanctified, they are going to know more and more of their own depravity and sin. That's what sanctification is. So here is a man being sanctified and he goes into the house of God and he's way down to the very depths of his being with a sense of his own sin. But having taken it to this God, God says, he went down to his house justified. So if you're sitting at the Lord's table today and you're saying, I am the greatest sinner in the world, I'm saying good. Now don't get me wrong. I'm not excusing or justifying or condoning sin for one second. But I am saying good. Because how do you know that you're the greatest sinner in the world? It doesn't come by nature. It's where the Spirit of God operates. And one final thing in the fencing of the Lord's table. The Lord's table is a place where we ought to be honest. We ought to be honest in every sphere of our lives with, the, with God. This is, this is the thing. He knows us better than we know ourselves anyway. He knows us inside out. The psalmist could say, O Lord, thou hast me searched and known. Thou knowest my sitting down and rising up. Yea, all my thoughts to thee are known. Now, when did you rise this morning? Who watched you rising? It's only intimate family that watches another person rising. And yet the Lord says, well, I watched it. And thoughts, there's nobody on the face of this planet knows your thoughts. And you're glad that's the way it is. And so am I. But he knows them. But he still wants us to be upfront and honest with him and to come clean with him. Why does he say that? Do you know the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Sometimes we try to hoodwink God. And sometimes we try to hoodwink ourselves. I can hold on to this little sin that I'm dabbling with. It's no great problem. I'm still going to forge on with the Lord's table and... I'm just not going to confess it. I'm going to do the two things. No, you're not. No, you're not. This is the place where we have to take our souls that so often we want to veil, not only from ourselves, but from God. And we have to pull the veil back. And we have to say to God, this is the real me, God. I am so sorry about it. And I am so embarrassed with it. And I am so ashamed about it. But this is the real me, God. What does this God say in these circumstances? If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May we come to him today with the repentance that is due and may we be upfront and honest with him. And may we cling to shed blood and to our broken body because that is the solution to every one of our problems. And every one of our sins. We read in the epistles of the Galatians of chapter 5 and verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, 
orgies and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And we read on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had broken, he said, Take, eat, this is my body, broken for you. And like manner also, he took the cup, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood, bring you all of But as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord gave thanks, and we endeavor to give thanks. O eternal God, we do give thanks that we are before the Lord who meets us at the point of our every need. The enormity of our need is immense, but the enormity of what was done for us is just as immense. May we remember that. And we pray that as we take these elements from our daily use and set them aside for our sacred use, that we by faith will eat and drink of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. May the things that Christ has done for us seep into our very being and saturate out every cell so that we are indeed part of this great Christ. <coughs> Help us, we pray, in the sense of our own depravity and Christiness, to remember that it's all definitely in the finished work of Jesus of Nazareth. Keep the enemy of our souls at bay and enable us to feast on the good things of the Lord's Word. And all we ask is in Christ's name. Amen. We read that when the arresting man came with Judas into the garden of Gethsemane, now Peter, and Peter was the wise. Um, Peter was the kind of person who would uh, act first and then ask questions later. Before you knew anything at all, he had taken a wild swipe and almost killed a man by the name of Malthus. He chopped off his ear. And Peter's thinking was this. If I can hold him back for a handful of seconds, Jesus can take to his heels and run. <coughs> and the response of Jesus was this, Peter, put it away. And 
Peter was so bothered about speaking. Why on earth are you not running? Now can I ask you a question? <coughs> Why do you think he wasn't running? The answer is because of you. That's why. And because of me. If we are in this he's not running because he loves his people. And he wants to do what he can be done in the order to secure the eternal salvation. It's astonishing. But it is the truth. The night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had been cast, he believed and said, Take me, this is my body broken for you. In like manner also he took the cup, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood. Thank you all of it, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death until you come. Now one of the things that is very often a lot of God's people in this sojourn that is a veil of tears is that they are afraid. So often, for one reason or another, we are afraid. So too was Jesus. And I'm not attributing any sin to him, but anything of that, of the light. But in the garden of Gethsemane, he was so afraid. He was really, really The reason I say that is this. Remember this, that even if you get to the stage where you feel nobody else understands your fears, he does. He knows them exactly. And he knows them absolutely. And sometimes we are accusing him of not hearing about just like the disciples in the boat. They were afraid. And all the things in the world that accused Jesus of that should have been the last. Here is the not that we perish. The very reason he was in the boat was because he cared. The very reason he was in the manger was because he cared. The very reason he was in Gethsemane was because he cared. He cared about And there they believe it says, because he really cared. He has to endure what makes him so afraid and causes him to be so sorrowful he's on the very edge of death itself. Because he cares. And that care is enveloped in the love of Jesus of Nazareth. What kind of love is it? And then, as you read the narrative of the Gethsemane story, at times you almost feel, I'm just not getting this. Because at one moment he's so afraid, he's saying to his father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. If there's any way that we can go, apart from going to Golgotha, let's go down that way. And then you'll be given reading Gethsemane. 
same place I am so And he's heading to Golgotha with a skip and a step almost. For the joys that before he endured the cross, despising the shame. What joy? It is the astonishing thing. The joy of saving you. You great sinner. And the great sinner that I am. The joy of saving such as we are, so that we might be part of his church throughout the endless ages of eternity. That's option. That's the truth. Now let's sing to his praise from Psalm 103 at the beginning. <laughs> sing the first five verses. Although my soul bless God the Lord, and we do have reasons to bless the Lord our God in our souls this day. Oh, thou my Eternal God, we thank Thee for every one of the songs that we have sung this day. They remind us 
But this is the God who is a step ahead of us all the time. Who meets our every need. And just as that eagle cannot soar where once it soared until its feathers are replenished and then it can get back to the heights it once knew. That's the way it is with ourselves. This is an up and down journey. It's so topsy-turvy. But the psalmist in another of the Lord's songs could say, My soul he doth. Restore again. Me to walk doth me within the paths of righteousness, even for his own name's sake. O Lord, help us to remember that our ultimate security does not lie within who we are and what we will do. It ultimately lies with who you are and what you have done. And help us to remember that that's where our focus must be. And so as we leave this place, be with us. And help us to use this day not only for the public worship of God, but for the private as well. Restore our souls in that as well. And all we ask is in Christ's name. Amen. Now let's conclude by singing to God's praise Psalm 72 at verse 17. His name forever shall endure. Last like the sun it shall. We'll sing to the end of the psalm. His name forever shall endure. His name Abide with each one, both now and forevermore. Amen.